0: Genesis chapter 16 is where we're at. Genesis chapter 16. Brad, I'll tell you before the service, but I'm going to have you control the slides today. So when I, you know, I'll indicate. I'll do something. I'll do cardinal baseball signs. Uh, Genesis chapter 16. And really, when we come to Genesis chapter 16, we're kind of excited. We've been looking at the life of Abram, and man, he has been knocking home runs out. He has been doing such a great job. He's been walking by faith. He's been waiting on God. Last time we left him, God made him this great promise, said, look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the star's. And the Bible says that Abram believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What we're thinking at this point in time is that Abram is finally beyond his, uh, his jacked-up days. He's finally beyond ever messing up again. He's finally kind of to this place where we're going to just watch him put on that super cape hero. And he's going to fly through clear and, and everything's going to be fine. And then we come to Genesis 16. And guess what Abram does? He jacks all of it up. Him and Sarai, I mean, they absolutely make a mess out of their life. Now, i got to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you, this is encouraging to me. Because, you know, it seems like every time I take three steps forward with God, then suddenly I'll take four steps back. How many of y'all feel like that? You don't have to raise your hands. It's okay. Uh, sometimes right when you think that you've hit a mountaintop, man, I'm never going to be the same again, man. I, I, I've met God on a whole new level now. It's on now. For the rest of my life, I'm just going to love Jesus No, and then suddenly life kind of hits us, and then we take a step back. You see, we're just like Abram. We're called by grace. We grow with the mercy of God, but then also we're still sinful. We still have issues of rebellion, issues of falling away from God. We all have been there, and that's what's going to happen in Genesis 16. And the question becomes, you know, how can we... How can we get back? You know, when we fall down, when we fall on our face. When Abram and Sarai and Hagar fall on their face, how? What's going to happen? What's going to be the solution? The problem that they have, and let me read to you a passage. And Brad, you give me there you go. Uh, Psalm 37 has this great verse, and I want us just to have this tucked in our heart as we're walking through this passage. It kind of sets up the theme of Genesis. Uh, Sixteen for us in the problem psalm thirty seven verses three and following it 's a great famous passage. You could put it in a frame and hang it in your home. Trust in the Lord, do good. dwell in the land of befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and He will act. I want to say something that I love this passage because it says that God will give us the desires of our heart. That that God has put in human beings certain desires, and those desires are good desires. And that ultimately God will give us the desires of our heart. The issue with Psalm 37 is it says, but you have to trust him to do it. You have to commit your way to God. You have to let God meet those desires in your heart. Don't go meeting those desires on your own. In other words, don't go do the desires of your heart on your own. Let God give them to you. Let God give it to you in his way, in his time. When we come to Genesis 16, Sarai and Abram have a deep desire in their heart. And they've always had it since Genesis 11. Their desire has been to have a child. And God gave them that desire. They wanted a child more than anything else. In fact, we meet them in Genesis 11, and it says that Sarai was barren. And what a human issue this really is. When, when you're struggling with having a baby, it's such a difficult thing. And it was the same thing in Genesis Sarai and Abram had this desire to have a child. And God comes to them in the land of Ur and says, Listen, I'm going to take you to a land, and I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you a baby. You're going to have a son. And not only are you going to have a child, through this child nation, a nation will be born that will bless the whole world. Ultimately, unbeknownst to Abraham, the promise that is being made to him is that through his descendants but ultimately come the blessing for all the nations, which is Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. But outside of that, you understand, as human beings, this is just a human story, they just want a baby, and they're so fired up about the fact that God's promising them this desire. Sarai believes, Abram believes, and it's 10 years later, and they've been in this wilderness of a place, and they've had to fight battles, and, and they've been hot, and they're in a desert, and, and there they are, and they're, they're in this land of promise, and still 10 years later, they are not with child. In fact, when we meet them in Genesis 16, Sarai is 75 years old. Everybody say 75. That's called old, all right? That's old in Genesis, and beloved, sorry to 75-year-olds, my pa- okay, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Sarai is 75. We learn at the end of Genesis 16 that Abram is 86 years old. Needless to say, they're tempted by impatience. They have this desire. And the mistake that they're going to make in their impatience in their elder age is they're going to try to do God's will their way. They're going to try to achieve what God gave them a desire to do, but to do it their way. And beloved, look up here. You do that, it will destroy your life. You try to accomplish God's will your way. It will destroy your life. We have to do God's will God's way. We have to receive what God gives. We have to let him achieve the desire, not us to lay hold of that desire with all of our might and scheming and plotting. You say, well, show me how they do this. Look at Genesis chapter 16 and verse 1, and what a chapter. I mean, this is like a soap opera, and God is so honest about his people. The Bible is so real and raw. You couldn't make this up on an AMC drama TV show. Genesis 16, verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. You can write out, this is not an unimportant detail, Hagar means stranger. That's the meaning of the the name Hagar, stranger. Of course, in the Bible, names have these rich meanings. And then verse 2, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing no children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, stay classy Abram, listened to the voice of his wife Sarai. Stay classy. That's great. This is really wonderful. So here's what we have. We got this woman who's so desperate to have a baby, who so wants this to happen, that she lays hold of her servant and says to her husband, go into her and we're going to have a baby through the young Egyptian servant, Hagar. Now, we ask ourselves as modern people, who in the world would do, what wife would do this? Is there any wife here who would do this? And the answer is no. But here's the issue. What we have to remember is that culturally, back in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there were laws and codes that allowed for women, primary wives to provide their husbands with a surrogate woman who could come in and have a baby on their behalf. In fact, it was an expectation that if you were a primary wife to a husband and you could not have a baby, it was an expectation according to the codes and the laws of society in the nations to go and take a maidservant and give her to your husband. And if you did that... The baby would not be considered the slave's baby. The baby would legally be your baby. It would be you bearing the baby through the servant. That might have been the custom of the day, but that was not God's custom, true or false. God will never adjust His commandments. God will never adjust His ways To the culture, society's ways of achieving happiness in life. God will never adjust his word to the culture and nation surrounding his people. And just because it was culture's way, it wasn't God's way. And what Sarai is trying to do is trying to do God's will the world's way. She's trying to take what culture gives her to bring her satisfaction and say, I want satisfaction so bad, I'm going to choose the world's way. And it leads to disaster, and it will every single time. We see what begins to happen in verse 3. Look at verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done What we have in verse 3 is a recapitulation of original sin. You might note that it says that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Brad, if you uh, go to the slide with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, you all can see up on the screen that when Eve committed original sin, it was the same thing. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate What's happening ultimately is that they are recapitulating original sin. And it's very important to know. You can sin against God with good intentions. You can sin against God's way, either religiously, legalistically, secularly. You can sin against God in so many different ways. The issue is, are we declaring our autonomy? Are we trying to take with a firm grasp our own life and giving it and shoving it to everybody around us and saying, this is the way to do it. We say, as Americans, we say, well, what's wrong with that? That's good. Take your life. Work it yourself. Do it your way. Do it according to the way you feel like doing it. But the problem is, is that God wants to protect us from all of the disastrous results that come. And what happens is, what happens with Sarai doing God's will her way, the world's way, everybody's way but God's way, is that it creates all kinds of darkness and bondage in her heart and in the heart of everybody around her. You see, underneath this smooth stone of good intentions... Underneath this smooth stone of, of a good desire and trying to do a, a good desire your own way underneath that whitewash, smooth, good intention stone. If you lift up that stone underneath it are all is all kinds of death and vermin and worms and problems. I I I mow my lawn, right? Even though I'm a pastor, I do this. And I'm good at mowing my lawn. Amen. All right. And sometimes when I mow my front yard, there's this little, there's like this, this stone thing. And I can either weed eat around it or I can just move the stone, mow over the dead grass area, but then the grass won't grow up on the side of the stone. So what I do is I always move this stone. It looks kind of cool on the outside. It's kind of weird looking, but it's kind of cool looking. But it's every time I lift it up, everything underneath it is dead. Everything is cold and dark and damp, and there's always a little worm going, and he's trying to escape, right? You see, when we do God's will our way, God's will the world's way, what's underneath that stone is death and bondage, and especially in the heart of human beings. Look at the heart issues that are the results of doing God's will Sarai's way the first thing you see as a result of this is you see false pride you see that in verse uh, four Hagar she goes in and get this it takes one time now imagine the jealousy that's happening between these two women one time Abram goes into the tent and boom next morning she's got morning sickness can you imagine how infuriating that had to make Sarai Right Here she is. She's the older matriarch. She is the leader, but here's this young, hot-looking Egyptian servant. And one time, her old husband, who's like 80, goes in and morning sickness, bam. Well, Not only is Sarai jealous of this, but Hagar herself comes out. And what she does is she shows contempt. And what it says in the Hebrew is she held Sarai in low esteem. So what she's doing is she's going, what do you think now? Who's the servant now? Nah. Who's the woman now? Nah. And what happens is false pride. Listen, false pride is always the heart issue behind doing God's will our way. Doing, trying to achieve God's desires in our own way. And if the stone were to be lifted off of your good intentions, what would be found there? Would it be pride Would it be, look at what I can do on my own? Isn't that our culture? Isn't you lift up the the clean stone of America and what do you find underneath? So much arrogance. I could do it my way. You see, that's the story. It's the story of sports. It's the story of politics. It's the story of of, of sexuality. It's the story of, of secular life. The steroids and the, and the fighting and the bickering and the power grabbing of all the interest groups. It's all worms underneath the stone of good intentions. Oh, I have such good intentions and I'm such a good person. No, no, no. Underneath is only pride and death. It's always the result of falling against God. God's not trying to make us miserable. He's trying to set us free from these heart conditions. Misery. First thing we see is false pride. The second thing is false blame. We do God's will our way. Ultimately, it leads to blaming everybody else for it not working out like we thought it would. Sarai, the one who started the whole thing. Sarai, the one who's come up with this devious, demonic plan. When it doesn't go her way and when it doesn't feel like she thought it was going to feel like when when it doesn't bring her the satisfaction she thinks she blames her husband. This is your fault. What in the world is that? It's just like Adam and Eve. You remember Adam? <laughs> Eve gives Adam the fruit, he takes the bite. God finds Adam and what does Adam say? It's the woman's fault and you gave her to me. False blame start trying to do God's will our way and it doesn't work out because it never works out. We become our own victim in our mind. Well, it's not working out because she didn't do this. Or it's not working out because he did this. Or it's not working out because should they should have supported me more. We don't get the desires of our heart. We get the demons of darkness. In our heart. False pride. False blame. Finally the result of doing God's will our way. Is false neutrality. How passive is Abram? Here he is. Here's our patriarch. Here's our great man of faith. Here's the man mentioned over 400 times in the Bible. Always alongside of faith. Here's the great man of faith. And what does the great man of God do in this moment? He does absolutely nothing. He just... I don't, want, I don't want conflict. I don't want to deal with it. Okay, you want me to go in the tent with the young girl? Okay. You want me to go over here? Okay. You want me to do? Okay. Okay, see, neutrality. You know what Abram is? He's an enabler. That's what he is. Abram's the ultimate enabler. And that's always what you find underneath this stone of good intentions, of trying to do God's will my way, of trying to fulfill desires in my way. What ultimately happens, if I'm not full of pride, if I'm not full of blame, usually I'm full of enabling, I'm passive, I don't want the conflict, whatever you want to do is fine. I just don't even want to deal with this. How passive Abram is. Whether it's false pride or false blame or false neutrality underneath this stone of good intentions, you can imagine... All of them are filled with hatred. Everybody hates each other. Everybody is divided. Sarai doesn't like Hagar. Hagar doesn't like Sarai. Abram doesn't like his wife because she's always wanting to do stuff. Uh, She doesn't like her her husband because he's never doing anything. He's never doing enough. You see, underneath this stone of doing God's will our way is division, a lack of community, a lack of relationship, a lack of love. America as you see it now is what happens. Families as you see them now is what happens. People who should love each other don't. People who should be connected together, they're not connected. We don't measure these end results when we start out on our own road, when we try to fulfill God's desires in our own way. Hmm. Hagar. Verse 6, Abram says to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The hatred's so bad, it's abusive. Literally, the Hebrews, the same word, dealt harshly in the Hebrew. Same word to describe Pharaoh's treatment of the Hebrew slaves in Exodus. Sarai afflicts her. Sarai abuses her, probably at least verbally, maybe even physically. This poor woman, this really victim, though filled with certainly a lot of pride, is abused. And so she does what people who get abused do. She flees. And she runs. And she gets out of there. And what happens next in, in this story is the solution to our problem. It's the good news. What happens next is the medicine that will rip us and help us and guide us to not doing God's will our way, but to doing God's will God's way. To to finding our heart's desires as God gives them, not as we take them with our tight grip on life. The solution away from this lifestyle of synergistic theological trying to help God do his job in our life. And the solution is in verse 7. Look at it. This is where the good news starts. Genesis 16 and verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And what Hagar is doing, she's Egyptian, And she's going back to Egypt, sure, is on the outskirts of Egypt. And she's running as fast as she can back to her homeland, back to the motherland. She's going back to Egypt. But that's not a good plan, you see, because she's just exchanging one bondage for another bondage. By the way, that's a common idea. Sometimes when we're addicted or we got one bondage and we want to get out of one bondage, sometimes our solution is to choose another bondage altogether. And so we're still in bondage. We're just changing the channel. She's trying to, to exchange the bondage she has with Sarai and Sarai's abuse with the bondage of Egypt, which is always slavery, always representative of sin. No, her solution is not to exchange one bondage for another. Her solution is not religion. Her solution is not rules. Her solution is not a self-help book from Barnes & Noble. Her solution is not five quick steps on not, how not to do God's will your way. Her solution is a person. Her solution is a personal encounter. And the person she encounters is described here in verse 7 as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is one of the major characters in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is kind of like Moses or David or Abraham. The angel of the Lord is mentioned 58 times In the Old Testament, it's a very particular kind of angel. It's not your normal angel. The angel of Yahweh seems to be not just a representative of God, but seems to be a representation of God. Because every time you run into the angel of the Lord, people worship the angel of the Lord. People call the angel of the Lord God. In fact, at the end of the story in verse 13, Hagar herself says, You are the Lord and calls the angel of the Lord the God of seeing. This is not your typical angel. When we add this and supplement all of these passages about the angel of the Lord with Exodus chapter 23, starting in verse 20, Brad, there's my sign. Moses says this, or God says through Moses, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. What that passage in Exodus is telling us about the angel of the Lord is that the angel of the Lord can forgive sin. That's significant, because later on in the New Testament, when Jesus comes and walks on the earth, you know what he keeps doing, and especially on a Sabbath? He keeps forgiving people of sins. He says, you are healed, and I forgive your sins. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders... Flipped out when Jesus did this because rightly they knew theologically that there's only one person who can forgive sins in an eternal way and that is God himself. And what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, what Jesus was telling people that he forgave is he says not only am I gracious and merciful but I am God in the flesh. I am the son of God. This is part of the reason why they hung him on a cross. And beloved when we add this material and supplement it to Genesis chapter 16 as well as with Exodus, I tell you, I join 2,000 years of of interpretation of Genesis by saying that the angel of the Lord is no other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is absolutely reasonable because Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And of course, he can manifest himself to people as a human being. Hagar runs in to Jesus. (laughs) And as Christians, we say that the key to life, the key to transformation, is not a set of rules that we do, but a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ who walks with us and who changes us himself from the inside out. He changes our heart. Only He is capable of getting underneath the stone and removing the vermin and, and the snails and the deadness and removing the stone altogether and bringing that part of grass into the sun of God's light and truth. See, Jesus is the one. You say, How can I, how can I start doing God's will, God's way, and not be so manipulative? Surrender, have a relationship. With Jesus, that is your only hope. We find what Jesus needs to do to us, right? verse 7, the first thing Jesus has to do to us in order so that we'll do God's will, God's way, is number one, we need Jesus to find us says that Jesus found her by the spring of water in the wilderness. She wasn't even looking for Jesus. She wasn't looking for this message. She wasn't going there. She wasn't going to come up with this on her own. She wasn't going to figure this out on her own. What she needed to happen is sovereign grace had to find her in the person of Jesus. And what we have to ask ourselves is, has Jesus found me? We don't go looking for Jesus. Jesus isn't lost, right? People say, I'm looking for Jesus. Beloved, he ain't lost. We're the ones that are lost, and he has to come and find us. And we know Jesus has found us when we start hearing him ask us questions. Look at verse 8. Here's Jesus' conversation with Hagar. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? And She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. This is certainly God. This has to be God. God asked the same question of Adam. Where are you, Adam? What are you doing hiding behind that bush? Jesus asked the man by the pool of Bethesda when he was crippled for 38 years. Do you want to get well? Jesus finds us with his grace and his mercy. Hagar, the stranger, Hagar, the non-Hebrew, Hagar, the outcast, Hagar, the unlovely, Hagar, the sinner, Hagar, the prideful, arrogant woman who looked on contempt for her boss, Hagar, this unworthy person, Jesus is graciously and warmly encountering in a conversation. This has to be Jesus. Read John chapter 4, you get the same story with the Samaritan woman, a non-Jew who has this bondage background, five husbands or whatever. There she is. She's a non-Jew. She's a Samaritan, unworthy, outcast, unlovely. And Jesus says, I can give you eternal living water that will flow forever. It will come out of your soul. You'll never be thirsty again, hon. You'll never be thirsty again. And when we meet Jesus in John 4 at that, at that well in Samaria, when we meet Jesus talking to that woman, we're supposed to suppose and to think about this very story and say, man, that Jesus, he was there in Genesis. He was there with Hagar too. He met her at a well. This is the Jesus who finds us. What are you doing? See, have you ever heard God say that to you? Have you ever heard Jesus say, what are you doing? you here? Why are you always drinking this cup of bitterness? Why are you hating so much? Why are you blaming everybody else? Why are you so passive? Let people walk all over you and tell you what to do. Where are you going with this, man? That changes you. Jesus finds us. How can I do God's will, God's way? Jesus finds me running, running from my abuse, running from my problems, running in my arrogance. Jesus finds me. That's the story of every Christian's life if you're genuinely a Christian. Jesus found me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. Jesus finds us. I was not as good as the older brother. I ran and lived in pig slop, and I did what the world told me to do, but Jesus found me. Jesus finds us. And when you walk in that identity, when your identity is shaped by this Jesus who finds you, you begin starting to see that your story and your life becomes assimilated into his story and his life. It's no longer about your story and your history and your family and what's happened to you. It's about what happened to him on the cross and in the resurrection. It's about a new life and a new kingdom and a new way of existing counterculturally, counterintuitively in this world. We're all like Hagar. All of us Christians, Jesus finds us. Not only does Jesus find us, number two, Jesus returns us. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, Also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, this is very interesting because what Jesus tells Hagar to do is he goes, I want you to go right back to that, that that horrible woman, and I want you to submit to her. Now, this is crazy talk, right? I mean, this is nuts. And sometimes when Jesus finds us, he tells us to do crazy stuff, true or false. He doesn't exactly kind of go the route that we kind of hope he always goes. Why would Jesus send Hagar back to Sarai? And here's why. Because God works in our life as we submit to people he gives to us. God works in our life in community, even imperfect community. God speaks to us and does his best work when we are submitting under leadership, when we're submitting mutually one to another, even imperfectly. And what Jesus is saying is the best way I'm going to speak to you is in that community. Jesus returns us. I want you to know, and this is just, I've learned this. I'm still learning this. I am still learning. Everybody say, still learning. That's me, okay? I am still learning this, but I am beginning to understand that God rarely helps me to have spiritual breakthrough unless I am submitted in community. I rarely hear from God when I run away from everybody else and I go up on the mountain of Joshua, Mount Joshua, and I sit there and have spiritual pilgrimage by myself and I get in a yada position and nothing happens here, as you can see. God typically works through the foolishness of submission. Submission when we're submitting to the people that God gives us to submit to, our bosses that are imperfect, our, our, our pastors that are imperfect, our our husbands that are imperfect, our 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 community groups that are imperfect, we submit mutually to one another, and through the imperfection and all the mess that is that community, typically God's going to do something, and God typically will set us free, because ultimately what God's going to tell Hagar as she goes back to Sarai is, okay, Hagar, you did what's right, Ishmael is born, and And Hagar and Ishmael, God's going to set free in a couple of chapters. And they're going to get set free from that community. But before God can do that, he's got to get her to go back and to return to relationships that have not been completed yet. Of course, also, if Hagar gets free on her own by choosing to flee then it'll be her who gave gave herself freedom and not God. And it must be clear that it's God who gives us freedom, not ourselves. And so Jesus returns Hagar to her community. But in verse 10, Jesus says something, and here's the third thing that Jesus tells us. Jesus vindicates us and Jesus vindicates Hagar. The angel of the Lord also said to her, "I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude." This is the first promise ever given to a woman in the Bible. It it is unprecedented in ancient near eastern literature. There is nothing like this passage in the Bible when it comes to God and a woman. And what God is telling this woman is, I am going to multiply Ishmael to such a a massive number of people. She literally gets a promise that sounds like something that Abram would get. And what she's saying, and what Jesus is saying is, I will vindicate you. I will vindicate you. Look at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael, which I think is a cool sounding name, by the way. Ishmael means God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. This is the first birth announcement given to a woman in the Bible. It's very similar to Hannah, and it's very similar to Mary. In fact, if you go to the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, it's almost identical. You shall bear a son. You shall name his name. Although in the New Testament, it's Emmanuel. Here it's Ishmael. Her story is becoming fused into the story of Jesus. And that's what we want. We want our story to get fused into the story of Jesus to where we become one with Christ. We live in union with Christ. In verse 12, the vindication is further announced. He he makes a promise about this son. He says about Ishmael, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That is a huge, massive verse. It's literally saying about Ishmael, he's going to be a wild donkey. In particular, this type of donkey is an onager. An onager has its origins in the Syrian wilderness. Independent, fierce, fighting everybody, not only against all nations, but fighting amongst himself. This prophecy of Ishmael being a wild donkey, always fighting everybody, is being fulfilled before our very eyes. All you have to do to know whether this is the word of God or not is turn on your 24-hour news TV show, all right, and watch what's going on. Arabs claim their descent In their relationship to Abraham through Ishmael. All of the Arab people have come from this wild donkey of a man. And all the Arab people have been wild donkeys. True or false? They're fighting each other right now. Muslim against Muslim in Syria. And 20 years ago, if you would have looked at the headlines, it would have been the same thing. And 100 years ago, it would have been the same thing. And 1,000 years ago, it would have been the same thing. And, and as we go through Genesis, we're going to find out that Ishmael and his descendants are always fighting Isaac and his descendants as the Arabs and the Jews have always fought against each other. Ultimately, what God is telling Hagar in an ironic twist of all prophetic literature What Jesus is saying to her is, I will vindicate you. There's going to be justice. You've been oppressed. You've been treated wrongly. And there's going to be consequences for that. Your son is going to fight back against this world. Your son and his people are going to fight back against this world. I will vindicate you. I will bring justice. It's a reminder of the consequences of sin. There's always grace. There's always forgiveness. But there is always consequences to sin. Because Abram went to Egypt and got Hagar from Egypt and he sinned. Because Sarai did this decision, that's why we had 9-11. That's why there's terrorism. The consequences of their sin we're still living with. And we will live with until Jesus comes back. It is as sure as the hand that I have, the scripture I have my hand on. Jesus finds us, he returns us, he vindicates us, he obviously hears us, Ishmael. Jesus also sees us. This is a powerful idea about the nature of Jesus. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me literally you are my god seer present tense always seeing me jesus is revealed to her in this comforting way he will always see her he will always see me he Everything is before his eyes. He is omniscient. There's nothing that goes hidden from him. No injustice goes unnoted or not put in a book. He will see everything. He oversees the provisions I need. He oversees everything about my life. And and that is the life of God. And the way to be patient in waiting for God's will for your life is to remember God sees you. God is with you. He is watching you. And in his own time and in his own way, he'll give you exactly what you need. Wait on him. Don't be impatient. Don't try to do God's will, God's way. Jesus sees us. Jesus finds us, returns us, vindicates us. He hears us. He sees us. Finally, Jesus forgives us. That phrase, truly here I've seen him who looks after me, it's very difficult in the Hebrew to translate. And what's obscure, sometimes you can find clarity in other portions of Scripture. A similar phrase and a similar circumstance is found with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. Brad, here's my sign. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 30. When Jacob survives after wrestling with the angel of the Lord, it says, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Many translations try to reflect the same kind of concept with Hagar. She's saying, I have seen God who sees me, and I live. I'm alive. I've survived. It's a picture of forgiveness. For our whole life to be brought before a holy God, a righteous God, all of us. (laughs) None of us are deserving of heaven or deserving of being in God's presence. If we all fall in the sight and in the presence of an awesome, holy, eternal God, what we deserve is death on the spot and the worst sort of hell forever and ever. And yet... Because of Christ and the cross and his resurrection and his grace and his forgiveness, we can stand in the presence of God and live. We can, we can worship and see the God who sees us and live. That's the message of Genesis. That's the message of Exodus. That's the message of Old Testament, New Testament forgiveness. This God forgives us. Are you forgiven? You can't earn forgiveness. You can't, you can't buy it. You can't religiously accomplish it. Believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe that he died for your sins. And ultimately, you must confess him. Just like her, you are the God of saying. She confesses Jesus. You're the God of seeing, of hearing, of finding, of vindicating. You're my Judge, you're my justice, you're my mercy, you're my grace, you're my everything, and let that shape your identity to the place to where you will patiently wait for God's desires in your heart to be accomplished in God's way. Verse 14, let me finish this out. Therefore, the well is called Bir Lahairoi. It lies be- between Kadesh and Bered. And note this in the final closing verses. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of a son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. What I want you to note is who is not included in those last two verses. Who's not included is Sarai. Verse 1, it started out with Sarai, Hagar, Abram. Here all we have is Hagar and Abram. And the very opposite happened that Sarai tried to make happen, which is that the son would be her son. It's clear here that the Bible is saying Hagar bore Abram a son, and the son was her son, not Sarai's son. Sarai was trying to get on the inside of fertility, and she ends up on the outside of this family. And the outsider ends up on the inside. I read Beth Moore on this passage because it's a passage that deals with feminine issues. There's a lot of uh, woman issues here. you got Sarai and Hagar being the main uh, characters. So I picked up uh, Beth Moore. And one of the things she said is, if you get something by by manipulation, you rarely get to keep it. Sarai tried to manipulate to do God's will her way. And what she tried to achieve, she ultimately lost. And that's the way, that's the world as best as I can remember it. We try to get love and we never are able to keep it. We try to get uh, the type of money we want, not just the money God provides, and we never get to keep it. We try to get our own type of community without accountability and we never get the love and the affection we need. Whatever we manipulate to get, we rarely get to keep. But if God gives you something, you always get to keep it. The community God gives you, you will get to keep. The mercy God gives you, you will get to keep. Whatever God gives you, you will always get to keep. Because you see, God will give us the desires of our hearts in his own timing, and we must wait on him. What God gives you by his hand and ways is yours to keep and to enjoy. So take what he gives, enjoy it, And what he hasn't given you yet, wait for it. Let us pray. God, we thank you. Because your word is good. It does not return to us void. May it accomplish all of its purposes. May it change things organically, relationally. May your word cause us to worship and enjoy you. And God, some of us might be fleeing even today, running from one bondage to another. Jesus, find us there. Find us like you did Hagar. Find us like you did the Samaritan woman. And even though we're outcasts, God, even though we are outsiders, even though we are unworthy and unlovely, show us your great love, shed that love into our hearts and our minds and God may it just really transform us and give us contentment and patience in a world that tries to replace your commandments in a world that says it can give us your will in a better way your will in its own way God help us to be more identified with the eternal son of God who loved us and died for us if, if you're not a believer today, I just encourage you. Has Jesus found you? Is he asking you the questions? The Bible says that if we confess him with our mouth, just like Hagar did, if we confess Jesus with our mouth and, and believe he died for us and rose again, then we will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't take special water or a special building Or special priest. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the Savior. And so I encourage you today, if you've never believed in Jesus, to receive him today. Receive his forgiveness, his name, and call him your God of seeing, your God of salvation. Let him set you free and save you from both Egypt and your own prideful ways. He will do it. Lord, we thank you again for this word. Amen.